I'm excited to be able to uh, be here with you today and to preach. Uh, this is a really fun series that we have if you haven't been here the last couple weeks. Uh, we're looking at um, questions that Jesus asked uh, in the Gospels. Um, and this is fun because uh, several people have told me is, um, over the years in studying the Bible that anytime God asks a question, um, there's something to really zone in and pay attention to. Um, and it is not really, the question is not really as much about God as it is about the one whom the question is being asked to. Um, God is the one who knows all things. Um, he is not asking this to get new information himself. He is asking in order to draw something out um, in the one being asked uh, that is there. Um, and it's kind of like if you get a floaty or a bug in your drink or something like that, and if you just go right at it, it's going to go down and it's going to get all swirled up and it's very difficult to get out. Um, if you allow it to sit and rise to the surface, then it is much more easy and much more manageable. Uh, in a sense, when a good question kind of functions that way, is it allows the defenses in our hearts, um, the preoccupations to calm down and to settle, and it can be surprising the kinds of things that come out that were in there and that were buried all along. Um, and I think that is what is happening here. So we're going to look at John 5, uh, 1 through 18. Uh, I will read it now, um, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Uh, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Dear Father, would you send your spirit here among us and work through your word? Would you help me to articulate uh, this passage that uh, truth would be communicated? uh, But more than that, would you speak to the places in our hearts that we all have where we desperately need your healing? That we might be encouraged and we we might turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So this question in here, uh, do you want to be healed, is kind of an interesting question. Because uh, on the surface, and asked, like, I wonder what you would think if you were in this guy's position, um, and, he, so, and someone just came up and said, hey, do you want to be healed? 
Um, you might give them a sly and sarcastic look and be like, who in the heck are you? Like, what do you think the answer is? I think, especially if we were reading through uh, this gospel up to this point, and if we have any experience with Jesus at all, we're already primed to know uh, that there is a lot more going on than just the question itself. And that even it being asked should prompt us some, some curiosity in our own hearts. Like we might think, of course I want to be healed But wait a minute, do I really want to be healed? Like, is there something in there that, you know, Jesus is poking at and that kind of thing? And I think it's like this, this, I do this and it drives me crazy that I do this to other people and it drives me crazy that other people do this. Let's say you're trying to fix something, you know, in your house and you're doing the best you can and someone who knows what they're doing comes around and they just start watching you for a little bit. What are you doing? And you know... They know exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to fix this thing in your house. But there's something in the question that what you are doing is not matching up very well with the end. I think this is what we see going on in this story. It is about a man who needs healing. And healing is the thing that um, um, is the place where Jesus is direct, directing his energy. It's, it's what he is speaking about. He wants to There's something more going on in that. And that in order to get there, he is actually poking at the means through which the characters in the story think the healing are going to come. And through that, they're asking the question of us, how are we getting that? What is the sense of expectation how that is going to come? And is there a connection between our efforts to be healed and the healing that actually is on offer, um, the healing that we long for in the first place? I think that is the question. And I hope it'll become more clear once we drive, dive in. I want to dive straight in and um, to the passage and um, see, see if we can draw this out, um, which he is doing in almost every other passage. I think in some ways he is highlighting uh, a deficit in the characters that he wants them to see in what they are doing. Uh, but that is a necessary thing, not in order to put them down, because what Jesus is doing is he is giving them something that is so much more valuable than anything they're going to get in the way that they actually see that these things do not work. And so that our our hearts are actually open that we might see the thing that actually does bring healing um, and does bring life. So here in the first place, what Jesus is doing is he is is illuminating a kind of spiritual blindness um, that are in these characters. Um, So we see Jesus is here in Jerusalem um, and he comes up to this place where there's a pool and there are all kinds of people who are there um, by the pool together. Um, if you'll not, if I'm curious if any of you notice when we are reading it, there's actually no verse four in here. Um, if you're you're the kind that uh, pays attention to details, is actually skipped. Um, and because if you look in your um, your Bible, you might have a footnote that um, some of the manuscripts will say something like this. Um, so the blind and lame, and paralyzed, they're there waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord to come down uh, at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water, and who with the stirring of the water would be healed at whatever disease they had. So this is why the guy is laying there waiting by the pool. Uh, the earliest manuscripts actually don't include that line, and that's why it's taken out of your, your Bible. This was the expectation of the people here um, who were laying there. They were trying to get, he was trying to get down into the pool. I'd uh, be the first one after the water was stirred up. And we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe there was a spring. Maybe there are other reasons that might stir it up. Um, 
And we're meant to see this is a little bit superstitious in some way. This is almost certainly not condoned by the Pharisees, uh, although it's probably a case of them just, um, just turning a blind eye. In order to get healed, when Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And of course he does. There is nothing new and novel about the fact that this guy is obviously paralyzed and he's doing everything he can uh, to be healed. But the interesting thing here is that he doesn't just answer the question directly. What does he say after that? He doesn't say, yes, whatever has to be done. He says, I'm trying to get into this pool and I can't get in there. And as soon as first. And I, I want to, empathy with our characters is a good thing. I want you to check your empathy with this guy at this point. He's just doing the best he can. These details are actually given on purpose by the author as a master storyteller to highlight something about the character. And what is showing us in here is that this guy, he is talking to whom the whole universe is made and through healing is on offer here. And he has no idea who he is. And when this guy asks him if he wants to be healed, he says, I really need to get down into this water. Um, and this is what is going to make me well. He wants to be healed. He has no idea how to do it. Um, obsessed with his own method of how this is going to come. And I would say that it's easy for us to be critical of this kind of thing. We might think of ourselves in our society today that we wouldn't be so superstitious about this. Never uh, be in that position. We um, um, wouldn't believe something like this. But I would ask you just to look into your heart and just ask this question. Um, do you want to be well? I want you to trace and think of the things that you do every day that in some ways offer some sense of feeling well that you know don't help in any way. Um, food. How many of you eat your food? You know that doesn't help, right? And does that somehow stop it? Does that somehow connect logically that this is not going to help me? Uh, not really. Alcohol, the way we work really, really hard every day, come to us uh, that we really know deep down is not going to be fulfilling. There are, our lives are consumed with attempts to be well inside. And the, the interesting thing and the novel thing is not that fact. I don't think there's anyone on the planet that would look inside and say, I have nothing that I need to be healed from. Confident and boastful are still trying to distance you know, themselves from something that they're afraid of. Some of us suffering is just a living reality that we live through. Our bodies tell us every day as a real thing. Our broken relationships, um, just the longer we live and the more relationships we have and the more that are strained, and this is just an ever-present reality that we live with. It could be existential angst that we just feel like we are nothing and that we don't matter. Uh, and there is nothing that is going to solve um, that deep ache. We all know that. We know that there is something wrong with us and we know that there, we have some sense of needing to be healed. But the important thing is since we have, we also have solutions in order to cover up, uh, to give us the feeling of healing that we know don't work. And yet we desperately, every day, continue to return to the refrigerator in order to make us feel better. And so life is a lot more palatable. So what this is showing us in the very first place is that there is an issue with healing, but that is not 
that issues, that is not an issue on its own, that one of the main issues on focus here is how we deal with that and our commitments to actually make ourselves well rather than helping have a lot of power to confuse where the help actually comes from. And Jesus wants to highlight through this and for us that we have a problem of a, a misapplication of our self-treatments, that our self-treatments in themselves are in some ways inadequate. Um, but that's not it. Uh, there's more here that is um, the uh, confusion that this is highlighting. If you read on, uh, you might have this might have stood out to you. Um, so Jesus, he heals a guy, he does, but then Jesus in verse 14, he pops up again and he says these curious words. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's one of those verses you almost cringe when you say that. It almost makes it sound like there was a correlation between the guy's sick, his sin and the sickness that he ended up having. Uh, and the Bible refutes that pretty clearly. Even just a few chapters later, that's the subject of a debate with the Pharisees where Jesus makes the point that that's not um, where these ailments come from. But one of the patterns that Jesus, in Jesus' ministry, what he does is he takes these occasions uh, where there is a need of physical healing or something like that in order to make a point that that is actually now, almost certainly in here, he is, Jesus is using his sickness in order to highlight the reality of the final judgment. And that there is a deeper problem in the human heart than just physical ailments. That there is a fundamental separation from God between humanity um, and God in rebellion against him. That left on our own, um, with no mediator, uh, that we, um, there is hostility between us and God. That the life force that we were created to live through and to enjoy and that gives us meaning and peace and all of those things has been severed. And there's a big, big problem. It doesn't mean that physical ailments don't matter at all. They are no less important. But what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take those and to push in. And that as these things are a sign of the brokenness of all of life around us, they're also a sign just as much of a brokenness inside that is between us and God. So what's he doing? He's making a point where not only does this guy have a lack of awareness of um, the treatment that's necessary, he also is not fully diagnosing the problem um, that he is living with. Like the, the, the suffering in his life almost becomes a, an obsession that distracts him um, from something that is a much deeper reality. And when we look at this, then it is just, the story unfolds and it is just obvious in here that he, he has no idea who he is talking to. He respects the Pharisees more than he respects um, Jesus himself. Um, that he's, he is a picture of um, this kind of spiritual blindness that Jesus is confronting at every turn uh, when he, is, he has come here into the world. So Jesus is poking on this, and I do think the Pharisees need to mention here, even though I don't uh, want to focus on them too much. Uh, but the last point of just a, 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 of a, a spiritual blindness that occurs here has to do with the group um, that he is in. Um, and this is very important where he is, the, he is painted as a guy who has more respect for uh, these religious ge- the leaders than he does for Jesus in the first place. Um, and to put it differently... That there is always a, a wisdom, I think this is a book title, The Madness of Crowds. Um, I, I haven't actually read that book, but I think, it's a, I think that is a, that's a real book. 
Uh, but there is always this illusion of the wisdom of crowds um, that is around us. And that there are groups that are vying for our attention and who have almost a self-appointed uh, doctorness and ability to diagnose what our problems are and what the solutions are. And in this case, it almost, it almost never in the Bible um, is this directed at people who are actually lost and who are broken and who are struggling with sin. It almost always has to do with some kind of elite. Almost always the religious elite is those who have some kind of a, a simplified answer to very complex, complex questions. That if you do this, uh, then things will be well. It is almost always some kind of a works-based thing. It is almost always something that distances some people from other people as being better or worse. It is almost always a community that reinforces itself through shame. That there are some in and there are some out. But these things are very appealing because they have a lot of power um, to put shame on top of our heads. They have a lot of power to exclude. They have a lot of power to offer um, very simplified solutions to complex things. And all it seems to accomplish in here is that for whatever wisdom, whatever power it may have, then that as well is just becomes a distraction from the main point uh, that Jesus wants to convey is that where does healing come from? So you kind of get a feel for the story of what Jesus is doing. And this shouldn't really be a surprise um, in a lot of ways. If we started in John chapter 1, uh, when Jesus came onto the scene, he says this. Or the, John says, it's the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is a story of the Jesus after the relationship between humanity and God was separated. He came to his own as the one who offers life and life in its fullest, and no one knew who he was. He was, it is, it's, it's, it's just, that's one of the best ways to start a letter, I, I, I think, like this, of just heightening the drama. That we know as the readers that this is the guy who is the solution and no one knows who he is. What is going to happen? At every step of the turn, that's what every, every turn, what Jesus wants to see, us to see in here, is the potential for this kind of blindness, these kinds of obsessions that actually distract from the one place where healing is actually possible. But that's only half the issue. The main issue that is being appointed here is if we keep reading in John chapter 1, is he says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The, the spiritual blindness that encompasses all of us in one way or another, it is not the winner of this story. It is the background against um, the redemption, the redemptive plan of God that he had planned before the ages um, came into fruition. And that it is just not all of that significant of a thing for us to recognize that there is something that we lack and something that we don't understand. And that's not going to help us at the end of the day. That's why we keep returning to those things over again, over and over again to numb and to make us feel better. The significant thing is that even to people who didn't know who Jesus was and who from all, I don't know that this guy really cared all that much. It is to these people that Jesus came on purpose. 
He came to to them being the misunderstood one, the one through whom he created everything, who had the power to say, whatever ails you, get up, take up your bed and walk. I have the power to make you well. But the real significance of this story is that this is not just a story of his power, but this is a story of his grace. And he came and confronted spiritual blindness at every single turn until it actually led him to the point of the cross. He used it to his own own ends. That he went to the cross to take on all of these even misguided attempts to get well. And to take him on his shoulders and so that he would, he would suffer the full uh, breadth, the cost of separation with God. So that he, from his own will, not of our own power, not of, a, not of our own will, could give the life of the kingdom of God. Jesus is doing this and he is having this conversation with this man and for us because it is, he is proclaiming to us the vindication of God's grace for people who are not well. It is not all that significant of a thing to notice that we, we need help and we need healing. It is something far more significant to be able to hear the voice of our Savior who came to us and to recognize him for who he is, God himself in the flesh, to say, I have taken on your burden onto me. Take my yoke onto you and you will find rest for your souls. And what does this look like in real life? I think when we see Jesus and we see Jesus for who he is, it kind of, it becomes like this. Um, I can't remember if I've used this illustration before, but I love the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where, uh, if you've read it, Edmund was um, a child in this fantasy land who betrayed um, the good guys. And through his betrayal, he was taken captive by uh, the Wicked Witch. And when they are on the road and they are going off to meet um, Aslan, the king, the king of the good guys. Um, But on the way, this witch who who had turned this whole land into a frozen wasteland that there was snow everywhere through her power, uh, it started to melt. And I want you to put yourselves in Edmund's shoes. So he he has been taken captive by this witch and he is led in battle against Aslan and looking all around him that he can start to see... The power of evil has been broken. And he can start to look at himself and he can look at her and he can look at the one, uh, the place where he is headed and he starts to question, who is actually going to win in the end in this battle? Is it going to be the despair or is it going to be Aslan, the one who came to make all things well? And when we hear the message of Jesus, we hear this message of the kingdom of God, um, we hold we, in that all the suffering goes away. But there is a way that by faith, the hearing his voice and looking to see with his eyes, that we start to see that this power of evil, this power of these things that ail us, that they... And it, is, it is much, much easier to believe that the, the despair is going to win. But it is with the eyes of faith through Jesus that we are given another vision that we have to look at all of our problems that we face every single day. The Bible gives us these things in terms of metaphors. This is why we read Isaiah chapter 5, 55. Did you see all of those just images of mountain singing um, and good? And 
That these, this is what is on offer for the people who are the children of God, that we have access to by faith. And what that looks like on an everyday basis, it is just plain and simple acts of confessing that the things that we keep trying to do to make us well, that they are empty and they cannot do it. There is nothing that we can do on ourselves, on our own, to make our lives good, um, to make ourselves well. But in addition to confessing the emptiness of that, there is also an acting upon every day the reality of the kingdom of God. And all that means is living as if this is true. That the power of evil has been broken, the power of good has come, come, and all of the rights of the kingdom of God are there for you. We obey God, not to make ourselves righteous, but we can't. But because God has given this to us as a gift, that we have the right and privileges of living as sons and daughters of God, right where we are. It's kind of like in Jeremiah 29 when he is instructing the exiles of how to live while they are in exile. What does he tell them to do? He tells them to plant vineyards, to have children, to keep living and following and worshiping God because his promised redemption is so certain. It's like you can start living that way right now. You think about that? Like, I mean, those of you who have kids, even just if you don't, just imagining, like, you might look around the world and say, why would we even do this? Why would we have kids now? It's just all risk and no reward. Think about those in Jeremiah and Exile, how they felt. He says, keep doing it. Keep living in light of the kingdom of God that has come. Hear the voice of your Savior that has come for you. He has vindicated the grace of God. He has included you as his children and that you have all of the rights and privileges of living into the future, into the, to the goodness that is to come even right now. And as we stop here, we turn to the table. This is exactly what we're going to do. Uh, we are going to taste the reality of Jesus, his death for us. We are going to taste the provision of his um, uh, of real food and real wine that is sustenance for us and that is joy. And we are taking this in faith as a community, knowing that this is real and that this, this is the one we are living towards and this is the reality that we are living in right now. Let me stop and pray uh, and let's begin now to even now to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. Dear Father, every one of us in this room knows there are places in our hearts where we desperately need healing and that we are trying to fill up and we are trying to take care of ourselves every day. Would you in your mercy lead us to the emptiness of those things? Or would you give us a new hope that we might see the mercy and grace of our Savior that was poured out for us on the cross and the joy of his resurrection and that we might, as individuals and as a community together, live in light of the hope of the future glory that is to come. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.